All right, we've got to look at this passage together. And um, I'm excited to do it with you. I'll be honest with you, I did not plan on doing our order, our service of organization on Pentecost, but it's kind of neat. I usually pray in the mornings, Lord, would you allow something to happen in the service that has not been planned for your glory? Would you open our eyes? And I hope that you have come with great expectation today. I want you to see that the context of Christian fellowship is God's pure, powerful presence and that that in and of itself requires a response. That, that's what you have in front of you, all right? The context of Christian fellowship is God's pure, powerful presence, and that requires a response from us. There's some things in your life that just require a response. This year, it'll be 15 years since the tsunami hit Indonesia. Um, that tsunami was announced just moments before it came, and in the city that was at the epicenter of that tsunami, over 75% of the people who lived there lost their lives. Almost 170,000 of 225,000 lost their lives. That tsunami was coming and it was announced. What would you have done that day if you had had those moments to consider what was coming? What would you have done? What would have been the mode for safety that you would have pursued? John loves the church. We're going to see here that he sets the context of Christian freedom, or excuse me, of Christian fellowship rather, in the context of God's presence. His pure, his powerful presence. We're going to see that John does that because John loves the church. This fellowship that he talks about becomes the root of the rest of 1 John. The rest of the call to pursue purity, to love one another, to, to be without sin before one another. But John uses this passage for us to demonstrate to us that this proposition that God is light demands a response. And that's the first thing that I want you to see. Look at verse five. This is the message that you have heard from him and, and that we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This proposition is made. God is light. This idea of light has in its context purity, power, and presence. The purity of light is given. Light exposes everything on which it shines. The very first words we get of God in Scripture is the command, let there be light. From the beginning of the Bible, God gives us light that we would understand His self-revelation. The purity of Himself Timothy says that God is light unapproachable by definition. We understand that light is also power. You only have to look as far as the sun to see that, right? John had written in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, in him was life, and his life was the light to all men. 
that we see that God is light in purity and power, but also in presence. John says the context of Christian fellowship is God himself who is light. And here we begin to see the magnitude of the church. Why the church is a big deal. The church is a big deal because God promises to be with the church. Last week we looked at 1 John and we looked at fellowship based on Jesus Christ who is the real deal. And that he brings real fellowship and real joy. Look at those first few verses of 1 John if you want to. But here we see him saying that God is light. And his very nature defines our fellowship. The reason that we say that attendance to church is a big deal is not because we're pursuing a legalistic practice, but because God has promised that God is with us. He is saying, I am here. And that demands a response. I met with a friend this week that I haven't seen for some years. And when I knew him, he loved the book of Isaiah. And he was one of the first ones that turned me on to the book of Isaiah. And I asked him, how is the book of Isaiah for you today? And he said, Bradley, you know that I've distanced myself from the church. He says it's one part deception on my own part, two parts busyness. Life has just taken hold. And I'm just not part of the church the way I should be. And he said, but I still return to this book of Isaiah and every time I do, I am overwhelmed with God's otherness, with God's purity, with God's holiness. He said, the book of Isaiah always brings me back to reality. And that's what the book, that's what John is doing for us in pointing out that God is light. This statement is for us the defibrillator of our souls, that we would stop on such a glorious day and realize that God is light. And if there's one thing that we ought to remember from that today is that we are exposed before him. John gives us three ways of responding. I want to look at those quickly. The first is in seven, six and seven. If you see that outline that I gave you on page 10, you'll see that the first way of dis to respond is one of delusion. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This idea of saying that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in the darkness this, this usage of light and darkness that John is using, of good and evil, that is always present in Jesus' words throughout the book of John. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. John is saying, not only of those who were false teachers in the church that he warns the church about in the next coming chapters, but he says to all of us, listen, talk is cheap. You can say anything you want to, but if you walk in darkness, 
you can't say that you are in fellowship with God. C.S. Lewis has this great image, Meditations in a Tool Shed, if you've ever heard of that essay. And in that essay, C.S. Lewis finds himself in a tool shed, and it's dark, and the door shuts, and, and everything is dark around him, save one beam of light that shoots through the tool shed. And he says, in that light, he sees the dust, and that light dimly illuminates what is around him, but there are still dark corners of the tool shed. And he said, it's one thing to be in the presence of light, the beam of light that shines down. He says, it's an entirely different thing to step into the light, to step into the beam, and to allow the beam to shine on you and to look into the beam. He said as he looked into the beam, he looked out the roof of the tool shed and he saw the green leaves. And then he saw some 90 million miles away, the sun. There is a difference between seeing the light, being in the presence of the light and being in the light, John says. John says, don't fool yourself, talk is cheap. But then he encourages us in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, he is in the light. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. From the very beginning, John understands our need to be encouraged. And he says, if you walk in the light, you are going to be exposed in your sin. But he says, immediately, we will have fellowship with him. And by the blood of Jesus, we will be cleansed from all of our sin. The first way to respond to this idea of God is light is one of delusion, saying we recognize that, but we walk in darkness. The second is verses 8, 9, and 10. And I want to say that this is denial. Listen to it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here we have those false teachers who said, no, I am walking in the light, but I have no sin. I have no need for forgiveness. This idea that the fellowship of the church could be about something other than those who walk in the light and are exposed by, their, by the light in their sin. John says that this is self-deception. It's clear that he says we are deceived if we say that about ourselves, that we have no need for forgiveness. We have no sin. We deceive ourselves. But immediately, in verse 9, he gives us the encouragement in that section. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that the way that John encourages us when we are tempted to deny that we have sin, we the church have sin, is that he takes us back to God's character and he says, listen, God is faithful and he's just to forgive. His faithfulness is oriented toward his promises to forgive. To crush the head of the evil one. To renew his creation. God is faithful to his promises and just. 
the inherent rightness for him to do that. It's just for God to forgive. Forgiveness is dependent on the character of God. But I think that we often forget that. And so we're quick to deny our sin. Because we are convinced that forgiveness is based on the sincerity of our confession. But what I want you to see here is that John says that forgiveness is dependent on the character of God. He makes it clear in verse 10 when he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar and his word is not in us. How do we make God a liar? First, we make God a liar because God defines from the beginning of Scripture to the end that human beings are sinful, that all human beings have sinned. Romans 3.23 is one of those places that we go to very quickly in the church. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you can go to Psalm 27. You can go to 1 Kings 18. You can go all over Scripture and find that the Bible from the first page from the chapter 3 anyway, to the, to the end, recognizes the need that everything be made new. If we claim to be without sin, we make God out to be a liar, but also a liar in His character. Because in Exodus 34, He defines Himself as a God who is patient and quick to forgive. But if there are people who don't need forgiveness, then God's self-definition of who He is is a lie. But indeed, John says it's not true. That our competence of forgiveness is dependent on the very character of God. Because he says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness and cleansing. And then he brings us to the last reaction. To this proclamation that God is light and in him is no darkness. And he does it in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John writes as an elder. He writes as one who has been with Jesus since he was a young man and now he is an old man. And he writes to the church and he calls them my children with a paternal instinct of compassion. He looks at them and he says, listen, I have thought long and hard on this. From the beginning of the Bible, when God said, let there be light, that in the light that God created, he would reveal himself and we would be revealed. We would be exposed. That John says in the first chapter of John, when he says that Jesus was the life and in him was the light of men and that the darkness had, tempted to, had attempted to overcome the light, but the darkness was not able to overcome the light. John had sat in this reality that the light shines into the darkness and does not overcome it. And then he has contemplated what Jesus said 
in John's Gospel in chapter 8. When Jesus stood at the festival, the festival of booths, when God's people celebrated God's presence with them in the glory cloud, and in the evenings of that festival, the torches of the temple were lit and illuminated the entirety of the Temple Mount, but also the city of Jerusalem. The light that represented the pillar of fire that was with the people in the desert. And Jesus stood up in the temple, in the court of women at that time, and he proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Jesus himself proclaimed to be the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus proclaims, I am the light. And John sees this and he says, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What do you do in the context of a tsunami? Do you know that the only ones who survived in the context of the tsunami were the ones who got into the boats and went into the tsunami? They went into it and survived it. What do we do when God reveals himself and says, I am the light. Here we see that our hope is to go into that light, that purity, that power, that perfection, because Jesus Christ takes us there. I have a memory of going to the beach for the first time. I grew up in the mountains of Georgia. And we went to the beach in Savannah and two memories. One was of little sharks that were being caught in the coast. And I remember thinking, there's no way I'm getting back in that water. I've seen them pull sharks out of that water. But the second thing that I remember is the power of the waves. And I remember my father taking me into the surf and holding me as the waves crashed over us. And I remember thinking to myself, there's no way that I would survive this. And I clung to my father. A great picture of what it means for us to cling to Christ, our Savior, our advocate who stands in the presence of God who is light. And in Christ, as the Apostle Paul tells us, we die with him that we might be raised to the newness of life. This idea of Jesus being the propitiation is the idea that Jesus gave his life so that the wrath of God could be absorbed. And what's so interesting about that is the people recoiled and said, wait a minute, why is God wrathful? The reality is that Jesus 
understood this very well. Because he and the Father are one. Jesus met with Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And when he explained to Nicodemus our need to be born again, to be brought to newness of life, he started with a verse that you know. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That in the death of Jesus, we see both the wrath of God and the love of God satisfied perfectly. It is in the context of God and His light, His perfect, pure, powerful presence that Christian fellowship takes place. That fellowship that says I'm exposed. A friend of mine told me just the other day, he said, you know, Bradley, I wish the church could be more like an AA meeting. You know, an AA meeting, you come and you sit down and you don't know everyone, but you introduce yourself and you say, hello, my name is Bradley and I'm an alcoholic. And the idea is that from the very beginning, everyone who sits in that room is exposed. And I want to say, that the church is infinitely greater than any AA meeting that we could go to. Because we come into that church and we ought to look and say to one another, hello, my name is Bradley and I'm a sinner. Hello, my name is Bill and I'm a sinner. My name is Leanne, I'm a sinner. My name is Leland, I'm a sinner. My name is Mike and I'm a sinner. My name is Ruth. And I'm a sinner. But eventually it gets around to the being that is there that is so bright that you can't even look at him. And he says, hello. My name is God. And I am not a sinner. My name is God. But you can call me Father. My name is God, and you are my children. I am light, and you are exposed. But I want you to know that I have loved you so much. I have sent my Son to die for you, that your sins might be forgiven. It is in the context of the fellowship of the church that God promises to be present, to show us the glory of who Jesus is and to change us, to transform us. And that's why John focuses on the context of Christian fellowship being the very light of God. Because as we continue on, we're going to see that we're the ones that need to be transformed. Sinners who have been redeemed. Sinners who are called children of God. Sinners who are even called saints. We come from His Word to His table that we might be fed. Come with me. Let's pray.